Welcome back to the Sim Geeks podcast. We are your hosts, William Belk and David Shablock. Today, we've got a special episode. We're going to talk about the new healthcare standards of simulation uh, from Anaxel. And we are joined today by Dr. Penny Watts and another friend of the show who you all know, Mr. Matt Charnetsky. So before we jump into these standards, explain what they are and why they're important to all of us, I do want to have Dr. Watts go through and introduce yourself. So Penny, go ahead and tell us your background, uh, what it is you've done in simulation, where you're at now, and what your role is with Anaxel. Great. Um, so I have been in simulation probably for about 12, 13, 14 years. I've been in nursing education that long, but I've been a nurse for about 30 years. Um, critical care, ER nursing, and back early days, uh, Dr. Chad Epps, um, a dear friend of simulation and so forth, kind of took me under his wing and mentored me throughout the years. And um, I'm now currently the director of simulation for the University of Alabama at Birmingham School of Nursing. And I'm also involved with the interprofessional curriculum group. And as far as Anaxel goes, I've been a member of Anaxel and SSH for gosh, at least 10 years or so. Um, and currently I'm the chair of the standards committee. So that's been our work for the last few years um, in Anaxel. And I'm also on committees in SSH as well. So. I could talk a long time about my journey, so. Hey, Matt, why don't you go ahead and give us a quick refresher for those that maybe didn't listen to your earlier episodes with us? Sure, I, I'll, I'll spare you most of the, the nonsense, um, but my name is Matt Charnetsky. I am the Director of Simulation-Based Education and Research and soon to be interprofessional continuing education uh, at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. And uh, my relationship with Anaxel I'm not totally sure how it started, uh, but I know the most recent iteration was just by Penny luring me into doing more work and then eventually saying, oh, goodness, I forgot you have to join. And then I did. And so here we are. And you've been happy since. I have been. I've been very happy since. So why don't both of you guys go ahead and explain to us who is Anaxel, what is the mission of the organization, and why? Like, what are the benefits of, of being a member of this group? Um, so Anaxel has been around um, for quite a few years. I think it actually started like a group in 1976, and then um, it was incorporated, if I can remember correctly, 2003. A group of nursing folks involved in lab um, got together and really wanted to form a group. And... Uh, to work together and, and, you know, have that community. And their mission is, I think, with a lot of the organizations with simulation is really excellence um, and nursing education, practice and research, and really um, that simulation innovation uh, can transform lives. And that's sort of what um, the mission is of Anaxel. And it stands for the International Nursing Association for Clinical Simulation and Learning, I believe. So, that's why we don't use that a lot. We just say Anaxel. So, and not not to be confused with Anaxel, which is what about thirty percent of the people I talk to say when they talk about the organization. Yeah, uh, it is Anaxel. Uh, I mean, I did too when I first started. Uh, and I think the only thing I would add to that, uh, from my perspective, uh, Anaxel as an organization has been it, it's really well formed and organized. Um, all these organizations, you know, there's so many different ones out there doing so much good work, pushing things forward. And Axel really has more um, breadth and depth that's well-described and well-defined. 
And that's how we end up with things like the standard. That's how they ended up with clinical simulation and nursing, the journal. Um, and there's just, there's a lot of deliberate execution in the organization that's enabled for a lot of this, this stuff to come about. And, you know, I'm good at recruiting members as Matt is now a member, um, but it's not just for nurses. Um, there's a lot of different professions that join and participate in an axle. And um, so, yeah, so I'll be recruiting you guys shortly. So. Sounds good. Uh, I'm actually slated to submit for uh, the Milwaukee uh, and axle uh, in person. So you might All see me there. Good. Yay. So I think most of us in the industry, and maybe not, maybe I'm making an assumption here, I've at least heard of the Anaxal standards, right? So we're, we're pretty familiar that you guys, you guys have been working on these for years. They've been published. They're on the website. Uh, but you have recently made a huge change in that not only did you come up with a new set, but you also changed the name. Do you want to go ahead and talk about that? Sure. Um, so, of course, we started this process. So let me back up. So the standards, uh, the original version was developed in 2004, uh, 2011, sorry. And I believe we're on the fourth iteration, Matt, remind me, I can't remember my years and times and stuff. They're living documents. And so when I became chair, we were in charge that year of doing a systematic review of the literature um, with the committee to look at any revisions um, that might be um, needed or any new standards. And it was all based in the literature and the research that was out there currently. And that's sort of how we, you know, developed those. And it, we started right before COVID. Oh, gosh, it was probably spring, summer. We got together, started getting the committee together. And then come spring, March of 2020, COVID hit. So while we were working on it, you know, people had to take a little bit of a step back um, from their service. But we caught back up. We were a few months behind. But back in the spring, I um, met with uh, Dr. Susie, Susie Cordon Egren, who is um, the president of an axle right now and, you know, a pioneer in simulation. And we tossed around the topic of, you know, a lot of people don't want to use the standards because of the word nurse. They think they're only for nursing. And I've been in more than my share of meetings um, where oh, those are for nurses. Those are for nurses. And they were formed and developed within the organization, but are definitely not meant for that. And that's sort of the point when we decided we're going to rebrand them. And this was from the board and from Susie and the committee. We were all for it. So after tossing around names and, and we came up, I think, with one that sort of says it all, it's healthcare simulation standards of best practice. Um, and one of the things I think that we did pretty good, but I think we have work to do is we tried to have an international and interprofessional um, membership on the subcommittees. Um, and then Matt, you know, kind of forced him um, on, on, onto the committee, but we still have work to do in that area because I think having the perspectives of all of the other professions is, you know, it makes it more robust in what we're doing. Our advisory council, we had about 23 organizations to agree. I think it was 22 or 23 that, you know, reviewed them, gave us feedback, and we still have work to do in really getting that more global, really across more organizations um, at that point. So we're excited. Um, it was a lot of work. And I thought in June, I was just going to go get on my boat and just drive onto the Caribbean, but I didn't. Um, but Matt, I don't know what you have to add to that. I'm sure there was a lot more work than in my one minute sentence. <laughs> I think uh, the only thing that I would add would be, it's, it's been really funny. So being raised by an educator, my mom was a second grade teacher, growing up around that, and then entering simulation education after never having really 
formal training in education and starting to learn about why we do the things the way we do them. And, and to me, it's new in simulation. A lot of times these things we talk about are, are new, these theories, these evidence-based practices for teaching. You talk to someone who's been a teacher, who's a trained teacher of any sort, of like that's, yeah, in the 70s, we all agreed that was a thing, right? And I think what the standards have done that's been really great is it's provided a vehicle for some of these different things to create an evidence base. There's lots of research out there, but it's not something that everybody's going to be able to find or consume or digest reasonably. So it curates that list a little bit. And what we get when we start bringing in these other professions is two things. One, it's more perspectives uh, for the just the writing in general. The evidence may not change a lot, but the perspective on that evidence changes. It also points us to evidence that we might not have normally seen, which is great. Um, but I think it also makes a vehicle for more different professions to be looking at what they do, not just based on the standards, but to contribute more evidence to how and why we do the things we do, which just makes it all better. That's one of the things that I think is really powerful about these are it is all evidence-based. It is all research-backed. You know, if you go to the website, you can look at the this infographics and things like that. And that gives you the short snippet, but then it's got all the research that backs it, which is the powerful component about it. And it's one of the things I try to push, you know, to get acceptance and, and things. So it's huge. And I do think these are, they're called living documents. And so even though we've been doing this, it seems like, several years, but it's only been around two, is that we're really looking at what are we going to do next? You know, the next iteration, you know, collecting the literature that's come out. We've had so much from COVID and the pandemic that people have done such great things. And, you know, how do we collect all of that and move forward? And we're going to be working on actually a survey in the next year, really looking at how are people actually using these and integrating them. And I think it originally started because I don't know about you guys. I've been doing it for a while. We just kind of did some trial and error in simulation and it wasn't always great, um, but we made some mistakes. And then I think a group just kind of was like, hey, we got to lay some things down. So a pioneering group of um, an Axel folks sat down and wrote that first iteration and it's developed over the years. And as you look at them, some things haven't changed a lot, but some things have for the better, of course. Mm-hmm. But um yeah, so it's been exciting to watch the process. Yeah, and that's, I'll, I'll be honest, this is, this is a big step for us too. So I, I work in a very interesting part of the corner, you know, basically a corner of medicine, right? Uh, and we've never really fit into any one box. We've never been EMS or we've never been nursing and we're not hospital-based. Uh, and so up until this point, we've effectively just kind of created our own content and created our own way to approach simulation. And there's not been a whole lot of resources for us because nobody does what we do. Uh, and so something like this to be able to help guide that says, all right, maybe you're creating scenarios that don't fit anywhere else, but these are the points that have to be touched on. And so pre, just recently, probably in the last six months, I went on and grabbed all of the standards in their PDF format, and I created an educator toolkit that we can use at our office, we can share with new people coming in. And yes, not everything you guys have published applies to us, um, but it is by far the most like all-encompassing, easily approachable set of documents that I could find as far as teaching someone who may be an amazing paramedic or even a great educator, but who's never so much as turned a mannequin on. And now I have something I can say, okay, go read this and then come back and maybe we'll feel a little bit better around it about it. That's the thing I, I, is, oh, go ahead. Sorry. 
<laughs> I was going to say, and that's the thing is that, you know, I, I reference it a lot and I speak about, you know, the standards and the, how important they are. And some people I know, they go to the website and it's like, it's so much. And it's, that's one of the reasons why we wanted to make this episode is, you know, we want to take that person that might just go, oh my God, it's so much. Where can I even start? How can I even start to implement them? So, you know, as we go through each individual one and talk about the snippets and the takeaway, which, you know, how, what, what advice would you give to somebody just to get started with it and, and start adoption? Well, that's a great question. And I know we are, as a, as a standards committee, really want to, we're working on some webinars and so forth, but really, how do you apply them? Because I think um, I'm working with a group close by um, to our campus and they've never heard of them. Mm-hmm. And they said, we printed them out and, and what do I do next? And how do you, right. so, so I kind of, when we, we did the unveiling and I don't know if Matt, if you were there, I guess you were listening. Um, you know, I usually start with SIM design. You know, and I was actually, I think we were live actually that day at the, the final day of Anaxel. And at that time, I said, you know what? I'm changing my mind on live internet right now that I really start with professional integrity now. Because I do think that that is a foundation for professions to work together, the learners and the faculty and the staff all to be on the same page. So I just, I kind of changed my mind on that. Um, but I do think in tobacco, they're not perfect. And I don't think that, you know, it's really hard to say, oh, I can meet all of the criteria and elements. And I think you strive to do that, but there's certain times we, we can't, you just can't, but, um, it does give you a structure and sometimes some valid points when you're struggling with a debriefer or a difficult you know, maybe buy-in or, or, you know, something that you can say, well, according to the standards, we have to do this. So I think it does help in that respect. Um, but if I started with them, I would start with the professional integrity standard. And that really is all encompassing of the healthcare simulationist code of ethics that was developed by SSH. That's sort of a foundation um, for that standard. And of course, all the work this past year with diversity, equity, inclusion, that was, you know, all in um, that standard as well. So that's sort of where I've changed my mind to start with. Um, so I don't know, Matt, if you want to add something, I could talk all day about these. So I better. Be <laughs> well, it's, it's funny, Will, you were talking about uh, how you sort of are in this corner of medicine. And my center is just the opposite. There's not much that we don't touch at this point. Um, we have a flight program, we have nurses, we have doctors, we work with the medical school, we work with the department, we're all over the place. And in the past, uh, I know a lot of folks on my team have kind of used those standards. Um, and instead of referring to them as the standards, most people at my facility refer to them as the best practices. And, and although those words are only a little different and they're all part of the title, Man, that is a different approach, right? It's, I mean, wearing it like a sword and a shield, fighting your way through trying to get people to do what you need them to do in sim. And I think from my experience here and my, my experience prior to that, looking at how I would use these, these documents, I don't know what you could call them, these papers, these things, uh, it, it depends. It's completely dependent on where you are in your journey, what you need most right and with these standards, um, and same with uh, accreditation standards from SSH, same with uh, standards coming from ASPE, uh, 
these organizations have put together some really interesting and compelling recommendations. Most of them, including the Axel standards, are aspirational, right? They don't fit all of us. We aren't all going to be able to hit those standards. And some of the standards may have things that are arguably somewhat inappropriate in a given context. Um, now, I would say that it's pretty rare, but, but there's just some stuff. It just doesn't fit. And so to me, where you should start is you should start with the thing that you need backup on in the moment. If you're working on DEI stuff, absolutely, professional integrity. If you're just trying to get started with anything, sim design is good. Operations isn't bad. You know, whatever you need is a great place to start. And then you start to get that foothold. You can start expanding from there and keeping growing that stuff. Um, and, and relatedly, I think it, it's maybe the big thing. So when I was in Arkansas, we would run into lots of SIM programs that had no idea we existed. Uh, this fabulous moment at Seven Ghosts where I was standing next to a guy and, you know, they were just doing kind of a round robin for the whole attendance. And this guy standing next to me said, what are we supposed to do if there's nobody near us that we can lean on for sim resources? People are like, oh, yeah, absolutely. That's what these organizations are for, that sort of thing. And somebody said, where are you from? And he mentioned where he was from, and it was 20 minutes from my sim center. And I thought, oh, boy, we are not doing a great job of letting people know we're here. But through these sorts of things, through the standards and, and all of that, you're not alone Right, you're you don't have to build it from zero. You don't have to fight every fight because those fights have already been had. We've all been through it as well, and and you know build on top of that rather than than starting at zero. So what I'm hearing you say is basically they are the Swiss Army knife of best practices that is there to back you up on almost anything that you could need. You could start with what you need and just use that as a tool to have best practices in your institution. Yeah. And I'm not going to argue with him on starting with SIM design. I flipped it to professional integrity because a lot of the the things that we often struggle with are, you know, um, you know, where the facilitator of the simulation can't be a teacher and they struggle with that and really having that basic assumption for the learners and for themselves and other staff members. So, but I think Matt's right. You, if you're struggling with debriefing at that point, go to debriefing. You know, in this group that I've been helping, they don't know anything. They have all kinds of problems from beginning to end. And it's like, oh, well, where, where do we begin? Um, and that is something I think we as a committee are going to look on is how do we help people really implement that? And they were sort of meant to be where you could go to the pre-briefing standard, which is new, which we've all waited for. And there's some great literature out that can you pick those out and say, I need to work on pre-briefing and I don't do IPE in my center. So I really don't need some IPE right now. Um, you know, so they, they are good. And even though I think I've read them 5,000 times, I still go, I need to look at that standard again. <laughs> I forgot what that one was. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So let's do this. I mean, right now we, we've started talking about them. We bounced around a little bit, um, but we still haven't really defined what the nine standards are. Uh, and so why don't we run through the, the nine standards you guys put together? Just give us a quick high level overview of what each one is. Obviously, there's a lot of information to unpack here. So just kind of explain in each one, just the bullet points of this is what you're going to learn from this. All right, Matt, do we go with the new or the revised? Da -da -da. I think we start with the revised. Okay. Semi-chronological. Okay, semi-chronological. 
Okay, so I'll start with professional integrity since I already did. Um, no, professional integrity um, really talks about mutual respect. Like I said, the DEI stuff, really looking at your sims as far as respecting each other. And that code of ethics is you need to follow the code of ethics through SSH. So that involves a learner or a, um, a staff educator, someone going to that document as well. It's about, you know, um, ensuring you have mutual respect for people there um, within your organ, within your center and the students. So I think it's a very important one to kind of lay the foundation of the environment and simulation, the culture we want in our community. I don't know if you have anything to add to professional integrity. I should have had my book here, but I'm going to go off memory today. I think the, the only thing I would add with that is, is just that it really does lay a foundation for everything else to build upon that. You know, if you are exhibiting professional integrity, you are going to seek out these other standards to continue building in each of those directions. So, yeah, absolutely. Are you pick one? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, obviously my favorite is sim operation. Okay, do that one. Uh, just seems like the place to go. And Okay, go there. What's interesting with with that standard I think is that it's it's a more broad definition of operations. So it's really focusing on operational needs, so operations and administration. Um, and it just gives some guidelines for support that your program needs uh, on, on that level. Um, so some of it is technical questions and, and technical criteria, but a lot of it really just is, you know, do you have a strategic plan? Do you have budgeting that can support what you're doing? Uh, those kinds of things. And I, I think for me, that's resonated so much because it's one of the things that we fight with so much with every organization. And having this just gives just that little bit more of, hey, here's stuff that we actually have to have. Um, so give me. So I'm going to interrupt you guys real quick, because what I noticed is we're two of nine standards deep. And what I'm hearing is effectively everything we do need to do to successfully accredit a program, because we're, we're talking about the exact same stuff that we see along lines with what the accreditation requirements are. Uh, and so real quick, Penny, do you want to touch on your relationship with SSH and if there is any crossover or any relationship there and how these standards were written? Absolutely. So it was funny you said that because my next statement was, these go really nicely with SSH and the accreditation standards. And I've been a reviewer for several years, so I am not the queen or a lead or on accreditation council by any means. But um, I do think the accreditation standards talks about the program. And, um, and so part of that is you have several areas you can be accredited and everyone needs to be in core. So I think a lot of what core is goes back to the operation standard. Are you sustainable policies and procedures, you know, um, strategic planning, those type things for sure. And then you can choose to be accredited in teaching, education, research, assessment. Um, there's actually a new one on fellowships. Um, and then also systems integration, which of course is about patient safety and clinical facilities usually um, where the sim you know, group is very intertwined into patient safety and so forth um, there. So I think they all work together towards excellence and quality in simulation. So definitely um, a starting point for that. So I, I encourage people that they're looking at the operation standards, 
go pull the accreditation, you know, standards for that area and look at whether you're getting accredited or not. It is just best practice for what's laid out for them. Um, and I could talk about certification, but maybe we'll get to that at some point as well. So. All right. Now that I derailed you, we can get back to what we were talking about. So we'll, <laughs> we'll continue on with the other seven we haven't touched on yet. Oh, what? yes. You're up. Well, my, my second favorite. Oh, 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 okay. Go ahead. Let Matt go. Right. I, I mean, I just thought I'd jump in. Uh, yep. It's professional development. Um, and that one, I think that's that's been such an important standard uh, and something that probably for similar reasons to the operation standard, I appreciate it. Because as we're seeing simulation kind of move into its own, as its own body of knowledge, as its own almost freestanding profession, it's no longer you need to go to this nursing conference to get your CEUs. It may be you need to go to these simulation conferences or to these webinars or to these whatevers to build that very specific set of knowledge. And, and in particular, I think it was a, a really big deal and a big part of the conversation surrounding this. Um, I, I think originally the intent was that it would actually be called faculty development. And it was a really intentional move to change it to professional development, both to include the operations and, and administration community side of it, but also to really recognize that SIM is its own thing. This is This is no longer a portion of people's job description, it's a lot of people's full job description. And, and so we need to be growing that direction. It's huge. Yeah. I mean, just because you're good at this doesn't mean you can just jump into SIM without any experience training or anything like that. It's I'm, I'm doing a lot of that in my organization. So the one thing about that standard too, is there's three criterion about doing a gap analysis on yourself, a self-assessment, developing a plan for your own development. And it actually references, you know, the um, certification blueprint for the CHSE or the CHSOS. It talks about Enaxel, it talks about ASPE, it talks about all the things in SIM because we have such a great community of practice with all the organizations there, you know, they are affiliates of each other um, and so forth. But the thing about the professional development is, because I help with the standard initially, I know Matt's actually was on the subcommittee I think people really want to hear, you need to do this, you need to go to this training for five days, and then you need this to be great. And that's really hard to say because we have a lot of simulation in a lot of areas around the world and all kinds of countries and counties and small cities and big cities that you can't just blanket that. So in that, it talks about developing a self-assessment. What is your plan? Where can you get those resources and the mentorship um, that you can work within SSH or Anaxel or, you know, Matt, he's probably mentoring someone now. I talk to people all the time, but it's being able to seek that information and being a lifelong learner. And so that standard was a tough one. And, and I'm sure it will, since it's his first iteration, it will continue to grow and morph um, over the next few years, for sure. I think that's, that's such a good point. And we talk, I know in, in other organizations I've worked with, with SimOps and with SimGhosts both, we talk a lot about as people are trying to progress in their career, the most important thing you can do is work to make yourself professionally bulletproof. And the way you do that is you look critically at your background, your experience, what you can demonstrate on paper. People are going to look at your CV and your resume. It's not necessarily about degrees per se, but you have to be able to demonstrate it somehow. 
if you look back critically at your professional experience, then you have an opportunity to say, oh, there's a thing that I don't really have a lot of demonstrable stuff with. I need to learn more about business. I need to learn more about project management. I need to learn more about computers and IT or educational theories or whatever it is. Um, So, yeah, I think, I mean, I just think it's a great standard. We may have recorded an episode about how to get a lot of that education for free not too long ago as well. Oh, yeah. And I think with COVID, so many people had some free resources. I know things opened up across the country. People were like, here are scenarios. You know, people really reached out in the SIM community during that time to help. And I think people networked and really, you know, learned a lot. And of all the things like free webinars and free things, you know, it's great they were able to do that. Yeah, the amount of community support and the amount of free education that has shown up in the last two years due to COVID is just phenomenal. And I really hope that we manage to maintain that motivation and keep doing it into the future. Mm -hmm. I'm finding new stuff every day. Yeah, and even aside from that, it's such a small community. People are so closely connected. Um, I just, the other day, I got approached by one of the nursing schools we work with who had been approached like cold call by a guy vacationing in New Hampshire who had just left his job in Alaska and was looking for where he might land with his family and where he might kind of explore simulation opportunities. It's just a piece to the, the puzzle that he and his family are figuring out. So he calls this nursing school to talk to them. They say, oh, you should talk to this guy, Matt, up at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. He calls me. So I look him up because why don't you, right? Internet sock him as best I can. Uh, look him up, it turns out he was the guy who hired the two guys to work in Alaska that then later moved to Des Moines, wrote the job description that got me into simulation in the first place. And so like this weird like godfather cousin of mine in Sim, I don't know exactly what it was. It's, I mean, it's a sketchy family shrub right there, but uh Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's so small. And so then very quickly, it becomes a matter of, oh, yeah, you know, David, I just need some help with XYZ. You know what? I was just talking to Penny Watts about that the other day. Hold on. Let me put you in touch with this person and and off. We're all like this (laughs) (laughs) around the world because I've actually, I've been to Jamaica and Zambia and done some work teaching simulation. And it's always fun to go teach and see other people using stuff. So yeah. And, and I think our science, the science of simulation is still fairly young, which is exciting. I think we've made, there's so many pioneers in it. I mean, I feel like I'm a very novice new person compared to so many people that have been doing it for years, but it's so exciting. But anyway, am I next? Yeah. Okay. You gotta pick one now. I'm going to pick sim design because that was mine. It ended up being my standard and my standard. Um, it is, I think, a lot of people's favorites because it is a way, if you're going to design a sim, it pretty much tells you step by step. It used to say start with a needs assessment. Now it says professional development and training of people involved in sim. So that was actually a little plug from Donna McDermott, um, who said, let's flip these around. But it tells you needs assessment, develop your case. Um, how are you going to facilitate? What's that level? What about peer briefing, debriefing? So a lot of that standard says, a blip, and then it says refer to the pre-briefing standard, refer to the debriefing standard. So it is a great way to get people started. And, and I still use it when, we, when I do a sim. It's kind of a mental thing now, but I, I do it. Um, it's just natural now for me to do it. But that's my um, 
probably one I start with when I used to start with all the time that is really just a good foundation for people. So I think it's, yeah. it's also such a great central piece, right? I mean, like, like you just said, you reference it at least in your mind regularly as you're working through things. Um, it may not be where people start their journey, but it's a really great place to land and hang out. It is. If I had, if somebody calls me and says, I need a design simulation. What do you recommend? Which standard? I would probably hand them that one first, at least for people to begin, because it's not as comprehensive as all of them. Um, and when they want to get in depth on pre-briefing and what do you include or debriefing and do you use feedback or guided reflection or, you know, so forth. So, yeah, it's probably my next favorite. Your turn, Matt. I, I mean, I think I'd probably pick pre-briefing. I know I said, let's go in chronological order. And now I'm picking all the new ones. Um, but, but I think years ago, I was at SSH and they were doing, or IMSH rather, and they were doing SimWars 2.0, right? The SimWars where you had to design your sim and the judges went through your sim. And the thing that stuck out to me most in that, these people had such limited time. Like I think, I want to say it was 30 or 45 minutes to uh, orient, pre-brief, run the sim, and debrief. So pretty quick turnaround for pretty big productions. And every single group that was successful, that, that really like put up a fight in the competition, spent at least five minutes of that super limited time on a structured and intentional pre-brief. And... From that, you know, I think I took some things and was like, oh, yeah, that's a thing you should include. That's a thing you should include. But for so long, we didn't have anything that really gave us a clear cut. Hey, this is this is why we do it. This is what we do and that sort of thing. And we'd always talk about how important it was. There's all sorts of conversations about whether the word pre-brief is even a thing. We don't need to get into that. I right can now. hear Ed Rivera ripping his hair out from here. <laughs> I feel it. I feel that, it. That is, that is his hill to die on. Remember that it it's is. not a pre-brief. It's just a briefing. We yeah. love you, Ed. Uh, Actually, the standard has that in that. Go ahead. Yeah. But yeah, so that's, I, but I think it's such a, a great thing and it's, it's so powerful and it offsets so many of the issues that we so commonly have in sin that, that it's really valuable. So talk about some of the basics of that. Just just hit me with, you know, since it's a new one, what are some of the parts of it? Hit you with your hit you with my best shot. Yes, please. Fire away. Um, so I think it's well, so it's got the the primary criteria, it's three criteria again. So the new ones tend to be a little bit shorter than some of the old ones. Um, and it focuses just on more the uh, educator side of things. So the simulationist, as they say, so whoever is kind of facilitating the activity needs to be aware of not just what's about to happen, but why it's about to happen. Um, and so kind of tying all those things together, making sure that they are prepared, not just from a knowledge standpoint, because it's so easy for people to historically walk in and say, I've been a nurse for 30 years, I've been a paramedic for 20 years, whatever it is, I've got this handled. I know how I know how these cases will run. That's so different than the educator mindset of I know why we're putting them through this. I know what I need them all to take out of it. 
That's huge. Um, then, yeah. And then it, it pulls together the criteria too. It pulls together the um, learning objectives and the, the pre-brief itself or, or kind of draws that line between the two things, which same. And, and in medical schools, I think this is maybe even a bigger problem where we'll have the objectives but um, there's sort of this subtext of, I just want my students to see this case. And then we're going to have a really nice conversation afterwards about all the times I've seen that kind of patient. And so really like connecting the objectives and doing all that will make such a difference in how everything else pans out from there that, that it's really critical. Um, and then connecting the, uh, expected plan for the, the simulation. So both of those two things, the objectives and the, the knowledge of the thing to the learner level. Um, and same thing. And, and I know this isn't unique to medicine, but in medicine, we had some really interesting experiences of finding out how different people's uh, expectations were of different levels of learners. Um, and so working through that and then taking all those pieces and putting them together and what goes into this conversation we have? How do we then steer people and kind of help them get into the mindset of the simulation itself? Part of that is there's an orientation piece to it as well for the learners. Mm -hmm. And that's something you, you would expect to happen all the time before the sims and all that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's... I, oh, go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead, Penny. It has the preparation and the briefing. So the pre-briefing... You know, that was kind of intentional on that subcommittee to because there are different levels and that's what people struggled with. Like, what do you mean pre-brief? You know, really, there's a couple of phases of that, which I think they did nicely. So sorry to interrupt you, Matt. No, you're totally fine. And like I said, three criteria. There's there's really sort of three per section. Um, so it, it breaks it down much further and it provides some really direct um, stuff. So there's. There's the preparation. I'm looking at it right now just to give myself away in case you couldn't tell. <laughs> uh, so, so there's the general criteria that we just talked through, but then there's the preparation criteria. Um, so looking at the needs assessment and all those sorts of things, the materials that need to be prepared, um, the planning, the delivery of all of that and putting it all together. Then there's the briefing. So a nod to Ed Rivera. Within the pre-briefing, there is a briefing that happens. Um, and so then that gets into like the really specific elements of what go into what in my mind I think of as a pre-brief, but we'll call it whatever we call it, uh, a thing that happens right before the scenario, um, and kind of walks through those, those four elements that we often talk about, right. The kind of generally the basic assumption, um, psychological safety and, and respect, uh, suspension of disbelief and, uh, expectations. And so by working through those things and being really intentional about it, then it kind of helps people who maybe haven't historically done this, pull all the pieces together and, and do so. See, now I see all your screens flashing. Everybody else is looking it up too. Oh, I had it already pulled up. <laughs> people think I have I don't it memorized. Need to. Yeah. Oh, it's so I don't need to, I have you two. That's right. Oh, see, see there you well, go. And that's you one of the reasons why we're doing this episode. Take the symphographs and a lot of people will put them on posters or put them in someone's notebook because it is such a good reminder. Um, and when I go pre-brief or I debrief, 
I have the, my pre, we make pre-brief guides and I take it with me. I take a debrief yeah. guide. I've been doing it for a hundred years. It feels like so. It feels like a wonderful segue into the debriefing standard too. I'm glad you asked. So oh, this I'm so happy you asked, William. I'm so glad you asked because this is probably, I would probably think the ones that people use a ton would be pre-briefing, debriefing, sim design. I think really are the ones that people have clung to. Um, the debriefing standard really took an overhaul. Dr. Sharon Decker led the subcommittee and there was several professions and I believe international folks on that one, if I remember correctly. And it really took a robust approach to where it's now called the debriefing process, because what they did was they added in the guided reflection, feedback, and debriefing within that standard, which I think is important considering, you know, the virtual sims. Um, you know, you have, you know, computer-based, you have mannequin, you have SPs, you've got in situ, you have high stakes, you have all these different things. And they kind of did a nice job of um, re overhauling the standard. Um, and pretty much in the standard, the criteria that are important is that you have to plan um, the debriefing. I plan a debriefing process um, when I plan my simulation. And I make sure that it's going to meet the outcomes that we've established out of the outcomes and objectives standard, which we haven't gotten to. And it needs to be facilitated by someone or system, whatever, is competent in providing that feedback and debriefing, guided reflection or whatever it is. And it has to be based upon a theoretical framework or evidence-based concept, whatever. And there's several, several, I should say more than several, there's probably over 20 debriefing frameworks out there and probably more to come for people to use. So it lays it out nicely on how do you debrief and um, those kind of things. It's such a great way to, you know, I think reading it is good, but you need to take it, read it, go watch the debriefing. Uh, observation, I think, is important for simulation people that are learning um, to go watch and learn. So I think that's a great way. So that's what, that one was my next one. I think debriefing has been, like you said, something we all struggle with, right? And so I, I know from, from my organization, I have extremely high level learners. I have a ton of extremely um, skilled educators. But one of the things that we were not doing well for a long time, and we're still working towards, is a standardized debriefing process. So everyone has their own way and they're doing their own thing. And what we really have been trying to fight hard for is say, you know what, we all need to go at this the exact same way so that every student has the same experience as they walk out of the room. Yeah. Uh, and so this, yes. this is one of the first things I downloaded off of your website was this debriefing process standard so that we could share that out as well as a variety of different debriefing um, techniques and all that kind of stuff and then kind of talked about them. But yeah, this is definitely something that I know from, from my experience, both with myself and with my team, that this is a big struggle for a lot of people. Look at all of the debriefing frameworks. I was on a call with a PhD student from England actually today, and she'd mentioned the debriefing framework. They're really all generally the same. You know, you kind of do a little bit of the gathering day to get that information at the beginning, then you're analyzing it, and at the end, you're summarizing and applying it to clinical practice. So it's all, you know, pretty similar. But I think the number one thing that I'm not sure it's ever gleaned out of the debriefing process, and I'm probably passing on what Dr. Epps would say, is that. We have a, a guide and a process, but you have to make it a conversation with the learners, you know, and, you know, novice people. I remember holding my little piece of paper, reading stuff out, but it can be a nice, genuine conversation most of the time. And you do have to say things they don't want to hear, like 
that was a hot mess, guys. Let's talk about what happened there, whatever. I've said that a few times in my life. but um, And then wrapping it up. Um, but the, the biggest thing when I teach a debriefing class is I usually bring, I don't have a, anything on my desk here, but I usually take a roll of tape. And I'm like, keep a roll of tape or duct tape with you because if you're speaking more than 50% of the time the debriefing, you're not doing it right. And I think it's so hard for teachers. We teach, we want to teach everything. And tell you what you did wrong. And let me lecture for an hour to you during debriefing. So hard to shift from that teacher to a facilitator of learning and getting them to talk because sometimes it is just dead silence. I feel like for hours. Um, and that's, that's probably some of the bigger struggle is you can't get your advocacy increase statement, right? It's okay. Just get them talking and listen, you know, listen a good bit. So yeah, it's a, it's a good one. That, that debriefing course is the one I want to go to. So please, I'd like to go to that, that fine, debriefing course. Fine. There's lots of really, um, good courses out there, but yeah, but yeah. You kind of touched on this. I, I have two major pieces of advice when it comes to debriefing. Uh, and the first one is it's not a lecture, right? It's supposed to be a conversation. And the other one is always avoid the proverbial shit sandwich, right? The, hey, you did a great yeah. job, but you screwed yeah. up 99% of the scenario, but it's cool because you did awesome. Got it. Yep. Shoes. Yeah. yeah. Lay yep. it out there, be honest, but also pay attention to emotional support for your team as well, right? We're not trying to you know, run them down. We're not trying to belittle them. Um, but it should be a conversation. It should go both ways. And it should not be all compliments or all tearing it down. We just have to find a way to get the point across. There's a lot of cognitive load for a debriefer. And um, one of the worst things, I remember uh, one of a physician friend of mine, I should say his name, Dr. Will Sasser, he would love me. Um, we were debriefing and he said something like, so tell me about the normal, you know, tell me about the blood pressure and how and he goes, oh, dang it, Penny, I used a GWIT. And everybody in the room, the students were like, what are you talking about? You know, and I had to explain that, guess what I'm thinking question. Because really in debriefing, if you ask a question you know the answer to, you should be asking the questions you don't know the answer to. The why. Talk me through what was going on for you at that time and let's dissect that. So, you know, it's really one of those things. Don't ask a question you know the answer to. So anyway, it was funny. He stopped and the learners looked at me and I was like, let me explain to you what a GWIT really is. So. Yes. I was always taught that the students should be talking more than the facilitator should yep. be. Absolutely. It's so well, hard. My, my favorite quip, I don't know, about debriefing is guide on the side, not sage on the stage. Um, that's, I don't know where it came from. I think I probably first heard it from Susie or, or maybe Sharon Griswold, some, someone along those lines. But um, that stuck with me forever. And, and with this standard, I think the other thing I really appreciate about it uh, is that it, it isn't prescriptive. Um, it, it really focuses on what's the end result we're looking for. Your path to get there may be different. And, and I think, David and Will, to your point, it's really great if you can get all of your facilitators working with the same set of tools. Not that you and I are going to debrief exactly the same way, but if we're using similar tools, we're able to build upon those, particularly if the learners are getting exposed to those more and more. They're more accustomed to them. They'll be able to engage with them more. Um, and I, I, I will put a little plug in for my favorite debriefing course. Uh, the Debriefing Academy up at the University of Calgary, um, which I did it online. I didn't get to go up to Calgary this time. But um, it's fabulous. Um, and 
the the debriefing method itself is great. It's it's my preferred method, but that's neither here nor there. What's really great about it is the depth of the other things. You know, talking about that cognitive load, all the things that you should be considering, working on the the nuance of debriefing. That's so important. Um, but that's this leaves so much space for that, and I I just really love that about the standard. And one more thing that I know we need to move on about debriefing is a lot of times the debriefing and the struggles people have, they having a debriefing is, is really within themselves and it's not the learners. And, and I've been in many of them and, you know, Chad's probably the king of, of, of doing that, but you got to look back at yourself on why is this difficult? Because either you're angry at them, like I taught them this and how come I'm not doing it? Or they're all, like where they come from, what was wrong with them, you know? So um, a lot of times that people struggle with that as well. So, all right, do I have to choose now? It's my turn. I think I forced the last one on you guys. So you have to pick one now. <laughs> well, um, I do think that there's two that I'll kind of wrap up. We've almost covered them all is the facilitation and the evaluation standard. Oh, and the objectives and outcomes. So I think the objectives and outcomes really um, from sim design onto that really thinking about what is your end result with learners. And it talks about criteria as far as developing objectives and outcomes. And you don't need 42 objectives for the simulation. Um, and I saw that there was a really neat debate going on on one of the social media things about objectives and outcomes. And do you tell them the objectives or do you not tell them the objectives? And we're not going to debate that today because we'll be here for another couple hours. But, um, that might be a future but, episode because it was a good conversation. Oh, Donna McDermott was like, we need to, so you need to call Donna about that one. But um, so, yeah, I think that one's really important um, to consider what are your outcomes? What are your objectives um, as you move forward in developing your experiences and then moving into the evaluation one, which I think in future iterations, we'll probably add more of evaluation of not just the learner, but the experience, the um, using the facilitator rubric by Kim Layton for, you know, all of that, um, which a lot of that is actually kind of integrated into the accreditation standards by SSH. But it talks about, is it assessment? Is it high stakes? Is it formative? And you really develop your experience and your objectives kind of based around how are you evaluating, you know, the performance of that learner, whether a strict rubric or just formative evaluation. So I don't know if you want to wrap up something in those two, kind of throw them all together there, Matt. I don't think so. I think facilitation, the other thing I would add in, in that. Statement. I haven't covered that one. I didn't talk no, about that. It was, it was, it got mushed into that, that started as three and then it turned into two. Into this Southern, you know, kind of. Cobweb. I love it. I love it. All y'alls. Uh, all y'all. And then, we all y'all. All. Youngs. All y'all. Uh, and Who's we can't guys? forget SIM-IPE. We almost forgot SIM-IPE. We can almost forget SIM-IPE. Uh, but, but with facilitation, what I like about that is it's, it's connecting the dots. Um, and it's, I, I would almost go so far as to say a lot of that standard is focusing on implementation. Um, yes. Talking about how do you facilitate a debrief? How do you facilitate a simulation? How do you get past these pitfalls that we've all run into? What are things you should build into your sim design that help you facilitate things as you move forward? Um, and that that's, it's a thing that we all forget. And I think a lot of people do subconsciously, 
but I, I remember the moment I first learned about lifelines and that sort of thing and how much it changed every sim that I worked in to think what's going to be the thing that's going to trip up my learners the most. Like what, do, just what do I anticipate? Or if these two objectives are dependent upon one another and they can't get this one, how do I help them leapfrog that so that they still have a chance to do the rest of the scenario? Um, and that I think that's just so, so interesting and important. And it's really about, you know, is it a simulation that's more teaching, more um, not as learner centered because they're novice learners? Maybe your embedded simulation participant helper person is yeah. in there really doing more queuing. What level of queuing? What level of fidelity and what modality are you using? And what type of noise? You know, if it's an early learner, are you adding that noise or is it the, you know, the resident of the fellow now that there's all kinds of noise with family members and all kinds of things going on. So I think you're right. It's one that's often forgotten. And I think it's probably a little, I don't want to say harder to understand, but it is pretty meaty. And I think it takes really some digging into that to really, um, you know, understand how that works. So, but it's very important. I agree. And I guess SIM IPE, and we don't want to forget the glossary too. I want to talk about it at some point. So you want to do SIM IPE, Matt? Or you want me to do it? You can do it. All right. So SIM IPE. Um, this one I think is so important because it talks about really how to do best practice in SIM IPE. You know, um, I remember one time I was talking to someone and we were talking about developing a SIM and in a professional SIM. And it was like me and I don't know, let's just say the physician group. Well, let's be sure, you know, we got to, um, we're going to have lab science and we're going to have, and I said, well, we need their faculty here. We need that person because you can't develop a simulation without having everybody at the table. And I think that's one of the hardest lessons. I think people forget about it's hard and IP is hard. And, and that standard talks about overcoming the barriers um, of simulation, which is, I mean, of IP is scheduling and curriculums and who's at this level. and the debriefing of IPE and co-debriefing, which we haven't talked about, those are some really big things that come into play in IPE and how do you navigate that? How do you role model? Because Matt and I may not agree in a debriefing, I'm sure we wouldn't, but in a debriefing over something about ACLS in the clinical setting. Um, and I've had this happen in a sim where a physician and a nurse debriefer, they kind of, the nurse was more responsible. They got into an argument about what was the right way and really the physician was correct. Um, actually, the nurse was correct in the ACLS protocol, but in their facility, if the advanced airway was in place, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but it's about role modeling between the, the debriefers as well and the people involved. So it kind of outlines that mutual respect and, and really listening to the other professions and everyone needs to be on board there. And Kelly Rossler could talk for days on that standard. That was, she was the lead of that group. But I don't know if it's something you want to add about that. I think the only thing I would add is just that it seems like everywhere is really pushing IPE hard, right? IPE, IPC, whatever, whatever flavor of that and whatever sub brand you're running on. And, and it's important. I'm glad they're pushing it. I think it's a really big deal. It's also really daunting. Um, and so if you're working with faculty or staff who maybe they're still pretty new, even just in SIM, to add all those layers on top of it just becomes super complex, really intimidating, yeah. and almost overwhelming. And not that this gives you every answer, not that this 
you know, is quite a roadmap, but gosh, it's awfully close. And it definitely gives you kind of a checklist of these are the things you need to be considering and trying to offset. You take that one with you. You take it with you to the meeting when you meet with other professions. Yeah. And that's the thing is getting it all the bodies together, getting it important. I mean, I come from my first uh, Sim Center. We did a lot of very, very strong IPE and, you know, with physicians and pharmacy and nursings and everything. And it was, I mean, we're talking, you know, we did perimortem C-section with two resuscitations happening at one time with nurses and physicians with everything. And I'm telling you, once you do it and you see it done well, and I mean, I remember when my boss came up and explained what we were doing, I'm like, you're crazy. That's too much. Much. Then when you see it all unfold, it's addictive and, and, and I miss doing great IPE. It's yeah. so powerful and so good. It is. It's, it's hard, I think. And I think the debriefing is something that we do a really big, we used to do it in the COVID stop, like a seven bed ICU. And we had about eight, seven or eight professions. It was real time. We actually had lab science with a stat lab. They were running real blood. I mean, it was this big orchestration. And, and over time, we had done it where we had to really break up the debriefing. We published this several years ago, mm-hmm. the three levels, because everybody was more concerned about the case. So we stopped it mm-hmm. and said, let's talk about the case, whatever room you're in. Then we did the big IPE thing with everybody together, talk about teamwork, you know, resource management, etc. And then we discovered we needed each profession to get together at the end. And we learned that the hard way because like, you know, nursing was like, well, that, that person was mean to me or, you know, or, you know, a, a physician's like, I really had a question about this diagnosis and this procedure where we did a little individual profession debrief and hopefully dispelled any rumors or, you know, let's help understand. But I think a big piece of IPE is having really good, strong IP facilitators, not just debriefers or facilitators. And I think people think they know IPE, but, um, you really have to be strong and how to role model, negotiate, compromise, and your language has to be good because the learners are watching their, their leaders, their faculty, their educators um, as well. And that's something that, you know, we've built a few classes to try to help just get faculty on. You can't throw. I know we had a, in one of ours one time, a respiratory therapist or a physician friend heard in one of the small debriefs that the respiratory therapist was thrown in the bus. This other facilitator was like, oh, they don't do that. They don't intimate. They don't mean it, you know. And so I was like, what? So we actually were able to, you know, get involved and and take care of it. But we started doing training of the IP, everyone involved beforehand and saying, we're going in with regardless of how you feel, we respect all professions. And that that was a really hard lesson. And, And so it's just kind of stuck in my mind over time about that's something really important to do. But I think as these standards develop and as new ones come around and, and as we identify ways to expand this, that's that's the mesh that comes together is that these are all feeding each other. So even with IPE, they will reference back to in the facilitation standard. These are things that you should carry forward. This is, you know, use this to help guide this piece. Um, and and it's just that makes it so valuable and and keeps kind of keeps everything bounded in a little bit so that that you can keep rolling forward, you can build the thing you're trying to do. And in the end, it, it functionally does mostly what you wanted it to do, um, which is sort of the point. The point. 
Yeah. And, and just having this conversation and then looking through the website and seeing everything, I mean, there's, there's obviously a lot of overlap, right? Like when we go from, from one standard to another, a lot of the same things hold true. Uh, and I think that's been highlighted by you guys going through each of these today. Uh, and so now that we've kind of gone through all of them, we understand what each of them are. Oh, what are we missing, Matt? I think we hit them all, didn't we? In glossary. Oh, that's right. The glossary, the, the definitions of what each of these things mean. Let's hear it. Well, let me tell you about the glossary, Matt. We'll probably jump in. So, so we, we actually had a long discussion between the board and the committee. And originally the intent of the glossary, and we kept it this year, was to support the language used in the standard because these have been translated to other languages. I don't know where we are with the new iterations, but translated multiple languages. And some terms may not be used in other areas. So, so what's your to find a lot of the language, whether critical thinking, you know, whatever. And we had a huge debate, I won't say debate, but discussion over, let's just use the SSH dictionary. They're on 2.0, I think right now. And I think what we did this time, because um, we did a lot this year, was we really honed it down um, and referred a lot to the SSH dictionary. And I would anticipate, I'm not sure I'll be around for the next iteration, that they would probably just use that as um, the, the main piece for terminology because terminology and simulation is very important. And that group that's been working on those, it's a big deal in, in SIM to really come to a common language. We're not there yet. But so it was a debate. It's, it's much smaller than it was. And um, hindsight's twenty twenty. We needed to work on terms prior to doing the standards, but so much changed. But that's kind of the future, I think, of that's my, my thoughts. I don't know what Matt thinks. but Yeah, I think the only thing I would add is that the glossary pulls a bunch of things together. Um, yeah. So the SSH dictionary is wonderful, and it is becoming more and more comprehensive with every iteration that comes out with the standards because they are not just additive, but they're also being refined regularly. It becomes a lot of our conversations were, well, in this standard, we use operation specialist. In this standard, we used tech. In this standard, we used healthcare technology specialist, you know, simulationist, educator, facilitator, all this stuff. And with the glossary, then we can say, hey, we agreed for this iteration of these standards this is the language we're using and this is the everything that comes to it based on what we've decided in this moment in time and that that for for this iteration in particular as we transition into the healthcare standards of best practice i think that became a really important thing and a fascinating and often contentious conversation well, we had an assessment was like a month Evaluation and assessment that will continually be, um, I think, addressed because everyone looks at those words differently and they mean different things to different professions. So that's going to be an interesting conversation to watch throughout. So, mm -hmm. so anyway, sorry, Will, you were you were ready to, to no, 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 I'm glad us moving on. No, I'm glad you I'm glad you caught that because it really is important. And like you said, it's a level set, right? Like it's a jumping off point to say when you're using these, these are the definitions we were working from um, versus if you just Google any one of those definitions, you're going to get 15 different explanations for what they are because we all use them, in, you know, differently. 
Uh, and so, no, I think that hitting glossary is very important. Uh, my, my next statement, though, was simply we've talked about them and we keep referencing this website, but no one has yet said where to find these standards. So why don't you guys tell us how to access these standards? Uh, and then while you're at it, uh, I know we've talked about an Axel and SSH membership, but I want to hear it from both of you guys. You're both heavily involved in these two organizations. I know David and I are members in, in SSH, not yet an Axel, um, but I, I want to hear kind of why. Why should our why should our listeners? Why should we sign up? What's the real benefit to joining these organizations? Well, so I would, the website. Website. The website. Anaxel.org. And I forget. H is SSIH.org. It is. Uh, but so the standards themselves are in axel.org slash healthcare dash simulation dash standards. But if you Google in axel standards of best practice, it will be the first hit every single time. Yeah. So many people don't know about them. That's my mission in life is to make sure everybody knows about them. I don't know how to do that, but I'm working on it. So one of the reasons you're here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. One of the reasons you're here. Yeah. All the nursing schools, all the different groups. And And, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. We we try to take these topics that are, you know, somewhat, you know, large and and harder to approach and just say, no, 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 these are not that bad. Come understand and then give resources. The first time I went to an an Axel conference, um, you know, they said, hey, won't you join this? This has been 2006, seven. Join this simulation task force at the school. Chad Epps same, came soon after that. And I was like, okay. So I went and I was like, oh, I'm addicted. I'm hooked. That's it. Um, and then a couple of years later, maybe um, when Chad Epps was there and we had a team, he was like, everybody needs to go to SSH. And I was like, okay. So I'm a member of both. I was originally started in Axel and then joined SSH. And I like both of them and I get different things from both of them. I think SSH is an interprofessional, a very large organization. Um, So many different things, mentoring, committees, um, pioneers in simulation. I mean, it's, it's, I can't say any more about it, but I go there for different things. I can't necessarily define that right now. And an Axel, you know, is a little bit smaller. It's a little more nursing focused, although it's growing as, you know, Matt's now a member. We have lots of other professions. Um, it is a smaller, more intimate group. And, and some of what they target are nursing programs and, and so forth. Um, you may not have a lot of resources maybe to go to SSH. But several years ago, Teresa Gore and Chad Epps, who were presidents of SSH and an Axel, they really communicated and talked about the organizations together and they developed the regional workshops, which actually now are with ASPE, um, SSH and Anaxel on the standards of best practice certification, um, the ASPE standards and so forth. And so it's such a great community of practice. And every time I go on a sponge, I attend every session. I don't skip and people think you are the biggest nerd ever, but I'm just a sponge thinking of how can I help my you know, the nurses in my school, how can I help my interprofessional work? What's new out there? What do I know? And I have some things I can share too. So, but the biggest piece I think is I haven't been to an Axel in two years and missing my Sim sisters, as we call ourselves. Um, but that networking and the dinners we have and talking about these things, you know, that's so much of the benefit. Like I'm so ready to go to Los Angeles. I'm ready just to see and, and, be with people. So that's kind of for me, but that networking of all of these organizations and conferences that is, I mean, that's a recurring theme for us, right? We talk about this all the time. Uh, And you mentioned an Axel being kind of your big 
aha moment. My first IMSH was very similar, right? Like I came in with a very specific mindset of what simulation meant to me and what I used it for. And I left there just completely eyes open to everything. And so I, I think there's, there's a lot to these conferences. It's more than just showing up in cocktail hours and learning new information. It's seeing stuff that you will never experience until you get there. And it challenges you to do different things because, you know, sometimes we get in this rut of doing a certain thing a certain way and I'm fine. Let's try it. I mean, I, I don't have to go by the book for that. And so it gives you that liberty and the knowledge and um, I just love them. I don't know what I'll do if I ever retire. I'll just keep going, I guess. But the camaraderie and, and finding out that you're not alone. That's right. There's a lot of resources for both of them have different resources. There's webinars for each one. You can get involved on committees. Um, they have, like I said, the mentorship programs. There's a research program. I mean, there's so much that's out there available free on the website. Some things are minimal cost, but the membership really gives you quite a bit in both of them. But The Homegrown Solutions is a big one for you guys as well. Absolutely. And there's an ISET program and SSH has, I can't even think off the top of my head, there's a mentorship program. There's even a roadmap on each website for new members and for your growth in STEM, it kind of gives you, both of them give you kind of a little roadmap for where you are, what you might do. I mean, it's, so there's lots of things out there for people um, if you look, but. So I'm, I'm a joiner. Uh, I am a member of, I think pretty much all of the major SIM organizations out there. And I, I think it's important to draw a distinction between the conferences and the, the organizations. No, that's uh, true. A, a lot of times we, I think we've all mentioned it at one point or another, you join the organization, so you get the discount on that year's conference. If you're not going to the conference that year, you may not join. And, and I think it's, I, I would feel remiss, not because I have any financial interest, but as someone trying to develop professionals uh, in, in suggesting that that was the best way to go. And, and I get it. M money is important. Money is always going to be a factor. Um, but uh one, if you're a member of any one of these organizations, pretty much all of them give you a discount on all the other ones. So it offsets it. it, it I mean, it's not free for any of them, but it, it helps. Uh, I think the other thing that you'll find is each of these communities does have such a different personality. Does. Um, and so we've talked about SSH a little bit. We've talked about Enax a little bit. I, you know, I have to say there is, there's some ghosts, there's ASPE, A-S-P-E, there's ASPE, A-S-P-I-H, which is, a, that's in the UK, different, kind of a different animal, but each of them, one, they focus on different things. United States, ASPE is standardized patient work predominantly. Sim ghosts is really technical and technology focused, operations focused. SSH is, is this great big umbrella organization that dabbles in everything and kind of does everything. And Axel sort of has this nursing focus, but I would almost go further to say that it even has a research focus to it. And not that these other organizations aren't doing interesting research and that sort of thing, but Axel does have a pretty intense focus on that. And so when you look at all the things they have to offer, the different programs that they each offer, which like Penny said, there's a ton of overlap in you know, mentorship programs or, or orientation programs, accreditation standards, all that kind of stuff. But you look at what they offer, and then you get an opportunity to get exposed to that community. A lot of times, one of those communities is going to resonate with you more than the other one does. And we talked about how small this community is. 
lots of people cross many of those different communities. So you're not necessarily sacrificing by not making it to one conference a year or something. I like to have access to all of them because I know if there's something I need, if there's a, a, a broad category of something I'm looking to ask about or check into or talk about, I may choose a different organization to go to, or I may ask at several and then see what kind of responses I get because they'll be different and it's going to be some amalgamation of that that's going to be what I what I actually needed and what I need to do. Um, so I think there's that. And then each of them also provides a different type of advocacy um, and they each carry a different weight depending on where you're advocating. Um, you, you know, SSH, it, it just is the big one, right? I mean, it, and not to say that that's the only thing it offers. It offers lots of different things, but it is the big one. Lots of people know it. It carries a lot of weight with it. But I can tell you, even at this job, talking about my relationship with SSH and with Sim Ghost, they thought that was really important. There were a lot of nurses involved in my interview committee. My involvement with Anaxel would weigh more heavily with those people just because it was something they were more familiar with. It was a community they were engaged with. The director, though, she was big in SSH. She really was engaged with accreditation and all of that. It really resonated her that I worked with that. The operations community really wanted to hear about everything I was doing with some ghosts, right? Um, so benefited me to be with all of them. But but I, I think there is that give and take, and there is um, just just a different thing you can pull from each. I think that sums it up well, actually, Matt. And I would agree with a lot of what you said. We even David and I present different things at different organizations, knowing where it's going to fit in best. And so just kind of understanding which organization best fits what it is you're looking to learn or where you're trying to get involved in something. Absolutely. Well, guys, I think I think that sums it up. I mean, I feel like we've gone through all the standards, even though I tried to skip the glossary there for a couple seconds uh, and explained why it's important that we have a separate glossary than the one that most of us are already referencing. And so I, I any final comments before we close this out? I think if people have questions or they're watching this or, you know, reach out to people in the SIM community. Like most of us will help you in any way that we have time for. And we don't have all the answers, but we'll definitely do our best to get you you know, what you need. And so, and call Matt anytime. <laughs> His phone number I is. I think it's my address if you'd like. Yeah, that's uh, right. right. I, I think the only thing I would add is, is keep in mind that if you're not hitting all of these best practices, if you're not hitting all these standards, if you are not ready to apply for accreditation tomorrow or whatever it is, that's okay. Again, this stuff is aspirational. We should all be working towards this. This is the evidence of what we believe to be best. There are tons of confounding factors. We are all humans. We have to keep building things, changing relationships, moving roadblocks. It's not going to happen overnight. So keep with these, keep chipping away at it, and keep implementing as you can. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Exactly. Penny, any final thoughts? No, I think I agree with Matt. And um, there's so much out there for people, but I think what he said is great. Don't be overwhelmed. That elephant, I think exactly. Just a little bit at a time. And, you know, there's great things. You can't do it all at once. Well, guys, it's it's been a pleasure to have you here. Matt, it's always great to hang out with you. And Dr. Watts, it's been nice to meet you and kind of go through this stuff. I'm sure this won't be the last time we hear from you. Uh, so 
again, thank everybody for tuning into this. We hope this has been helpful and I will let David carry us out. So for Sim Geeks Podcast, my name is David Schaublog. That is William Belk. And uh, thank you very much for Dr. Watson, Matt, again, as always. And uh, we'll see you on the next episode. Soon to be Dr. Matt. Soon to be. (laughs) Yep. Thanks, folks.